this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Okay, this is not one you hear every day. Tom Hannon has sold essentially the same company three times in a row, (laughs) three different stages in his career over a 20-year period. He sold a company called FPD in its latest iteration called Hannon Distribution. The most recent sale was to a public company. Uh, The second time he sold the business was in 2005. At the time, he built it to $3 million in revenue and uh, sold it for about a million five. And he tells the story quite candidly about some of the mistakes he made in this interview um, about you know how he might do it differently. So he talks about one of the dirty little tricks the acquirer uh, used on him to eventually lower the price of the business. Uh, he talks about how he used a valuation, a third-party valuation, to keep the, the price firm as best he could. He also talks about the notion of kind of overplaying your hand and and being too aggressive with the potential acquirers in terms of trying to get them to increase their prices. Lots of really good lessons learned here from Tom Hannon. Tom Hannon, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John, thanks for having me. You know, when my producer looked at, at your company, it was fascinating for in doing the research where you had three companies that essentially, I mean, it looks like on paper, did something similar. So I wanted to, again, this company in its first iteration was called FPD, and then its second iteration, FPD, and then its third, Hannon Distribution. But essentially, it was the same kind of basic company. What, what is it that, that you guys did? Uh, yes. What we did was we distributed um, and published free publications. Okay. So that uh, so our business was uh, we would go out. There was back then uh, there was a lot more printed material than there is today, uh, and we would uh, acquire um, clients that would uh, use us to distribute their free publications. And these would be to major retail outlets, to um, you know small individual locations. So or give me an example. To- um, let's say a stop and shop supermarket in Massachusetts um, or a um, Brooks Drugs that used to be a big store, uh, outdoor vending boxes, restaurants. If you walk in and you can see all the different free publications when you walk into a restaurant or a brochure rack, yeah, I've that, seen that's, that's what we did. So you would go to the, the brand, the company that wanted to get their brochure catalog you know, magazine into the hands of consumers and say, look, we've got distribution outlets in all these places. Uh, you know, Give me your magazine and I'll distribute it for you. Yeah, essentially, that's what we did. Um, and the one thing that we did different, um, and this was especially tr- through uh, my second time through the business, was we went out and created our own accounts. So um, our biggest success story was uh, a company called isoldmyhouse.com. 
and they were part of a mortgage company. So we pitched to them that they needed, they had this website for for sale by owner, and we pitched to them that they should have a magazine out in the field and that would drive additional traffic, uh, the lead traffic that they wanted for their mortgage business. Uh, and that was a very successful um, endeavor because that that turned from a one magazine, um, you know, 50,000 copies, one magazine to eight regional titles and over a million copies a month being distributed throughout New England. Wow. So take us through when you say you sold essentially the same company three times at a high level. What do you mean by that? Well, so the, um, the, the, the first time I did it, uh, what happened, we started a distribution and publishing company. We had a magazine. And then uh, what ended up happening was I got to know the industry and I got to know all the other companies. And I started uh, targeting companies to acquire. And they were companies that they, people wanted to leave the business or they were struggling. So I started acquiring companies through earnouts. And I was the first time through, I was able to, to go from a, you know, from a startup to a, uh, you know, a million dollar company. Um, and I was able to sell that to a uh, my biggest customer at the time. Got it. And that and and then you started a similar business. How do you do that? Because I think when most people think of of when they sell their company, they're going to have to sign up for some sort of non compete. How did you get around the non compete to start it? This you know essentially the same company a second time. Yeah, we had it was the best of both worlds because my two year non compete was up because part of the uh, the condition of the sale was I had to go and work for the company that was acquiring me. Uh, they wanted me to come work for them and run their. Um, they wanted me to actually acquire companies for them and uh, and build their Boston operation. But the the two year non compete was up and they got bought by a company that I didn't I didn't want to go work for. So um, so it worked out perfectly that I could go back out on my own. But the beauty of it was they gave me a priceless education of how the business worked, how systems worked, um, and really how to create that single advertising marketing piece, which was the difference maker for me. What do you mean that difference maker? What, what do you mean by single advertising marketing piece? That was the uh, being able to go to a company like um, East West Mortgage, and when they had their I Sold My House, they create their own magazine. So instead of when you pick up a magazine and there's you know, 20, 30, 40 advertisers in it, the whole magazine was about them, and, and th they got it. And that's what you learned that you then took into the second iteration of FPD. Right, right. So I was able to um, work with printers. So I was able to be a print broker. I worked with the design companies, and I was able to, you know, design the magazines. And then I was, uh, of course, able to distribute them. Uh, and it, and I also uh, helped them sell the advertising, built their advertising models. So I ended up getting a piece from several different um, revenue streams. Got it. And so you ultimately built up FPD. Uh, you were saying to three million dollars in revenue. Is that right? That's correct. Got That's it. correct. We, we and that was very rapid. That that was over a eighteen month period. I went from zero to uh, three million. Wow. And so at three million, if you drew a pie chart around your revenue sources that that made up that three million dollars, what would the where would you have been getting revenue from? Like what would the big chunks of the pie look like? Well, the biggest would be distribution. I was probably getting like 2.1 to 2.2 straight from di uh, distribution fees. So that would be uh, someone like isoldmyhouse.com saying, I want you to get this magazine out of the world and I'm, I'm willing to pay you to put it in your stands and, and the various places you distribute. Yeah, correct. Correct. They would pay us what we call the stock fee. A stock fee. Okay. So, so the majority of that's coming from stock fees and then you've got some other revenue sources, it sounds like. I mean, this sounds like a pretty, I mean, what kind of profits are you making on the 3 million? 
Well, it, it's an interesting question because initially I was making around 8%, which wasn't very good. Um, and then I uh, brought in a CPA firm to really analyze my business. Uh, and I got, I was able to really drill down um, and, and in essence, prepare myself business eventually to sell. But I was able to drill down and really figure out where all my costs were, where my expense, where, where my profits were. And I was able to change that from eight to 20% over the course of a three month period. Wow. Great, great investment with the CPA firm. <laughs> so you're, <laughs> so you're, you're pulling in, if I'm doing the math correctly, around 600K. Mm-hmm. On the three million, um, so- sounds like a pretty good business. Like, were you tempted to just kind of hang on to it forever and make it like a, a nice little annuity stream? Like, what made you want to sell this thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because I, it, it was it was a fantastic business uh, to get that type of cash flow. It was hard to get. My problem was I could never hire the number two guy or the number two girl, or the number two person. I just could never find the second person to care as much as I did. And it just, it led to so much frustration. Uh, and I was working all the time. I basically was married to the business, working between 70 and 90, 90 hours, typical week for me. So I had to make a decision. Uh, it, you know, I had some life events happening and I just, uh, I had to I had to make a decision whether what to do and I and I did try on multiple occasions to hire that number two person it just uh, it just it just wouldn't come to life for me. As you think back on on that because I think a lot of owners listening to this would would relate to that how hard it is to find someone that is going to care as much as you do. Um, have you you know time being what it is water under the bridge? Have you been able to pinpoint the mistake you made in in terms of the people you did hire? Was there anything that you did wrong or, or that you might advise other people to do if they're looking for their 2IC? One thing, I, I, as educated I, as I got in business uh, and, and running a business and acquiring businesses, I was not educated enough to realize there were consultants out there and the people that could actually help me. Um, and I think that if I had it to do over again, I would have... I would have looked, I would have searched out that person that could have been a consultant to come in and really help put the pieces in play. So, because that business um, could have could have gone on to this very day uh, because of the way that we were doing things. But uh, that was the biggest mistake I made. When you I say consultant, didn't... do you mean like a like an HR, like a recruiter to help you find a, a second in command? Is that what you mean by consultant? Yeah. Well, somebody like um, and I'm not. I'm married to a CFO consultant, mm. and and she comes in and takes companies like mine was, and she actually fixes them, and she and she gets them a, a fantastic exits typically. So uh, that's that's the type of consultant I'm talking about. I didn't. I did not know in 2005 that existed. Interesting. Okay. And and you and. You think they would have been able to help you think through the hiring of a of a second in command? Uh, yeah, potentially, potentially. That was uh, that that was the hard part, and I think anybody who owns a company, as you said, has gone through the same thing. Why do you think that is? Like, why? Because because I would agree with you. I have so many horror stories. I mean, I've made the same mistake many many times in in various iterations. Um, why do you think it's so hard? to find somebody to run the business, like a general manager or just a kind of a second person? I, I think it's passion. Uh, one thing, I, I felt like a, a real passion with my customers. Uh, if they hired me, I felt like I owned their business. 
Uh, their their magazines were my magazines, and I I don't I didn't feel that with uh, the employees. I had a few good ones. I'm not saying I didn't, um, but they just didn't understand the whole business. They could maybe get the magazines out, but they didn't understand we needed to be profitable too. Um, you know, they didn't get they didn't get it from A to Z. They would get bits and pieces of it. So back in 2005, you made the decision that you wanted to you know get your life back. Was there part of your consideration at the time to say? Instead of selling, maybe maybe I I slow down and I I, I trim my revenue. I, I did. Did you think about becoming a smaller company, a more manageable company, and again holding it in for the long term? Like trying to help. I'm, I'm trying to figure out because I think a lot of people listening would be like, "How do I know when the right time to sell is?" Um, you made the decision in 2005. I'm just trying to get inside your head as to why you thought that was the right time to sell. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's a great question. I'm not sure I have a specific a specific trigger point for that. Uh, I was going through. I was working a lot. I didn't have uh, the number two. Uh, the business was doing great, um, and I had, like I said, a personal situation going on with my dad. He got really sick, and I had to take care of him. And I just I felt at the time that I was probably at the peak. Uh, I don't know if, if my management skills and my abilities were going to keep it going any farther. And, and when you own a business, the last thing you want to do is retract. Um, you don't want to, you do not want to drop your revenue. So uh, that I felt like it was, it was that, that, that was kind of the, the reason why I didn't think I was going to get any bigger. So sell well, I was probably at the biggest point I was going to be. You know, it's funny. You know, I think about this uh, quite a bit. And I talk about it with friends and so forth. Um, like you think about people like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, who have who have kind of created these or co-founded these businesses. In Bezos's case, obviously founded them from scratch, and and you know, and and grew to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees. It, it really does seem. Like the exception rather than the rule. It seems that so many other, you know, for every one of those, there must be tens of thousands of other business owners who, who get to a million, two million, three million in sales and say, "That's kind of my max in terms of complexity." That's I don't want to scale it much. I, maybe I don't have the skills to go beyond this. It sounds like you right. were thinking the same way. I was. I, I was. I felt like I had maxed out my ability, hmm. and and to go to the next ability, I would have needed. I probably would have needed to hire a COO and it, it, it would have been an exhaustive search to find that person. And then there's another, there's another part of it too, is that the investment into the business. So that's the thing about like Amazon. If you look at them, they're constantly investing into their business. And as a small business owner, you draw a line, you want to make money too. You can't, you, you can't work for free. So you need to, you want to be making money. And if you're not making enough money, then, you know, then, then you start to get frustrated. So I think that's part of it. Um, Jeff Bezos is constantly investing in Amazon. Like, you know. Right. Have they declared a profit yet? I, <laughs> I can't remember. I don't look at their numbers, but, but I, know, uh, I know the stock's you know, risen tremendously in the last little while, but I, I don't know if they've actually declared a profit yet. Someone will be able to tell me in the show notes for sure. So take me through in, in 2005, um, again, you've had a more recent exit of a similar company in 2017, but... But back in 2005, it was three million in revenue. Uh, you're netting around 600 grand. You make the decision to sell. So, what next? What did what did you do? Did you hire somebody? Did you 
put it on bizbuysell.com? Like, what did you do to sort of market this business? Yeah, what I did was, I, the first thing I did, I did talk to some brokers, although I never hired one. Um, but I wanted to get their feel for, the, for, for what the sales process would be like because this was a much bigger company than that I previously had. So I got some feelers for that. And then I, went, I got a valuation done, uh, professional certified uh, third-party valuation. Which what, what did the valuation say the business is worth? Uh, 2.1 million is what oh. they came back at. Okay. So, you, so they say it's worth 2.1. Okay. So how did you feel about that number? Uh, I felt anything north of two would have been great. Uh, you, you know, I was happy with that number because you're, we had two big hurdles. First, we're a service business, uh, so people can leave service businesses. We didn't have an actual product. Sure. Uh, uh, and the second thing was uh, the I sold my house uh, business ended up being around fifty-five to fifty-eight percent of the business. Ooh, okay, uh, so you had some some yeah. customer concentration issue. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, that was a that was a big issue. So I I did the valuation. Um, and then what I did was I did a bunch of research on M&A firms and they, how they create uh, a deal book. Mm-hmm. So I, cre- I created a deal book. Uh, I used evaluation, tax returns, and I basically did a reverse due diligence. So I was able to give any buyer um, the, everything they were going to need to actually uh, consummate the deal. So a lot of people would say, okay, so due diligence, I know I'm going to have to give them my, like, my last couple years of financial statements maybe some projections. What were some of the unique things that you included in, the, in that sort of pre-diligence package that maybe are maybe less obvious or things that, that wouldn't maybe ordinarily uh, be included, but you chose to include? Uh, well, I used my biggest strength, which is business development. So um, I was able to put in there a marketing of, you can create several more isolmyhouse.coms. Um, so I use that. I, I tried to give them a, a projection um, of what they could be. Um, and then what I did on the on the nuts and bolts of it is right down to every route that we ran, because at the time I had uh, 40 full time people, 20 part time people, and we were going to 20,000 locations a week. Um, so I gave so they were giving given uh, a total profitability of every single route. And knew how much revenue, how many magazines, what the profitability was right down to the penny. Wow. That does sound like a, a valuable book. So you did this pre-diligence, then what? What was your next step? Uh, the number one thing that I think that, uh, that I've done in every business I've sold, and I've sold quite a few of them, um, is I found a buyer. I found buyers is what I did. I, I ended up uh, really zeroing in on eight companies that could acquire me um, for the deal I wanted. And, um, and what were the commonalities among those eight companies? I mean, what, did, what were you looking for in terms of attributes of a company that might want to buy you? I was looking for somebody who was already in the business. Uh, the distribution could, business? Distribution or publishing. Okay. Um, because then if they were a publisher, they could benefit from the um, single advertiser products that we were doing. Um, and, it, and because of what our business was, if you can better distribute what you do at, a less, at less cost, you could t- potentially grow your advertising. So I wanted a publisher or a distributor, um, and those those two two um, people were really the people I was after. So you find these eight companies, then what? Uh, well, I wish I had Dan Martell's uh, email uh, to be honest with you, <laughs> but uh, he had that great line in there. But I just oh, you're referring to Dan from uh, past <laughs> past Built to Sell Radio episode. 
Yeah, yeah. I um, I I just went out to them and I and I said that I was interested in you know in selling the business and if they were interested they could get back to me. Um, and I had and and you know of them, um, four companies uh, stepped up to the plate and I got uh, I went through the process, the NDA process, the deal book, the meeting, the wine and dine, and I got four offers. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So so did you approach? Who did you approach at the eight companies? Um, I approached like uh, there was a, a local big publisher, um, Suburban um, Publishing. Um, then there was like the no, Boston I don't, Feet. I don't, no, I don't mean the company names. I mean like who in the company? Did you was it the president or the head of corporate development? Like what was the title? I went to the president because one thing I've always done um, with the industries is I got to know all the players. So I knew all the presidents of the companies. I knew I knew their management teams. I got to know everybody. So yeah, I guess I was in. in doing some due diligence in the beginning, not even realizing it, but by getting to know the companies. Got it. But I went right to the top, okay. actually. So you get the four offers. Uh, you had the valuation at 2.1. What was the range in the four offers from the lowest to the highest? Yeah, I the lowest came in at, uh, it was like, a, it was a $500,000 starting point. Mm -hmm. um, and the highest came in at uh, 1.8. Got it. Okay. And so how did you, obviously the price was a consideration. What else did you think about as you're evaluating these four offers? Well, I, it, this is hindsight, right? It's, it's hindsight as I wanted the cash at that point. Uh, I just, I wanted the cash. I didn't trust anybody. I didn't trust anyone who was going to pay me. So I said, I want to get the cash. So I, I was really looking for the best cash out possible. So uh, I would be done with the business at that point. So who, who was offering? So what was the maximum cash of the four offers? Which one had the highest cash component? It was a local, it was a local publisher um, that, uh, that was acquiring companies like I was back in the uh, mid nineties. And, and so and, what was the, the cash component that they were offering? It was full cash, hundred percent. No, no earn out, nothing. They were off. They offered me uh 1.8, 1 1.9, 1 it was in that range. It was, you know, there was a few little glitches in there, but that's where they were. So, so they're offering you 1.8 or 9 in that neighborhood in cash. Right. You had the valuation of 2.1 and, and we're thinking kind of anything over two is good. So they're getting pretty close to your number. Did they, was there anything, uh, you know, was there anything else involved in their offer? Did they give you, doesn't sound like there was any earnout or any, anything else that was involved. It was literally, here's the, here's the cash and, Right, uh, we'll take uh, the keys. Pretty much, that's that's what they were offering. Um, what about and, a transition period? Like, how are they going to learn how to run the company that you'd built? These forty employees. Like, what, what what sort of transition period did they propose? Not long. Uh, three months, ninety days, uh, unpaid ninety days, which I wasn't excited about. But uh, um, that's what they they thought they figured because they were already in the business within ninety days, they could figure it out. And how did they structure the payment so that you made good on the ninety days? Uh, there was no contingency. Literally, like uh, the checks in the bank, you could have flown off to Hawaii and never kind of taught them anything about the business. Correct. Yeah, wow. it was kind of interesting. That's not how I would have done it, but that's what they—that's the offer that they ended up putting on the table. And so that was of the four, the one that you accepted. It was, but I just want to say that the best one was real potentially was the lowest. And I'm just going to say this for anybody who's out there thinking about selling their company. Um, you need to think about deal structure. Okay. So the company go further on that. So the company had offered me um, a half a million down, 
they offered me a job basically doing the same thing I was doing, except no operational responsibility and unlimited upside earn out on the earn. -out. So if for a 10 year period, whatever I brought in sales wise, they were going to give me a percentage of, including my existing customer base. But wouldn't that have just so, made you a glorified salesman? It, it would have glorified salesman, a salesman. Yes, it would have. It would have, but it also would have put me in the area where I ex excelled in my career, which is the business development. Interesting. And why do you say, in hindsight, that would have been the most lucrative offer? Um, because I would have, uh, when I've done the math on it a few times, and I don't try not to look back too much, you know. But when I've done the math on it a few times, it would have actually been a significant amount of money more. Uh, over time, and and how much more do you think you how much do you think you left on the table by not taking that deal? A couple million. Wow. We won't make you think about that too much. <laughs> we can move on <laughs> to your your next bit. But but before we do, so you had the four offers. I mean, did you were you kind of playing one off the other and trying to gin up the price a little bit because this one point eight a pretty good you know a pretty good valuation for sure. Um, but did you try to push them up a little bit with the other three offers or, or, or not really? Oh, absolutely. I, I, made I made sure they knew about each other and I made sure that they knew there were other offers. Uh, and I was definitely playing that. Um, I was playing that hard. How did that impact the, the overall negotiation? Um, actually, uh, with, for two of the companies walked away. Um, and then with the company that had the lowest offer that really wanted to do the deal, uh, they they eventually came to the point where they just they they gave me their final offer. And how did you know that it was really their final offer and not just you know them saying it's their final offer? It got quiet like from them. There was, there was not. There, it went from you know several emails a day to uh, I couldn't get them on the phone. So it, it got much more difficult to communicate with them. So I, had, I, I think I pushed them maybe beyond the point of where I should have to, to keep them in play. And this was the, the one with the $500,000 down, but the unlimited upside. Correct. Correct. Interesting. Interesting. Because this is one we don't talk a lot about because on the show, uh, you know, I've heard lots of stories about people playing one off the other, playing one, off, one offer off another offer and sort of ginning up the price. Uh, but there's a danger in that, right? Which, which is obviously that if you push too far, you know, no one likes to be sort of the, um, the pawn in, in your negotiation or being kind of manipulated or being part of an auction. And, and, and it can turn some people off. It sounds like in your case that happened. Two of the four walked. Right. And I think that you know, if, you're, if you've got a bigger business and you're in an M&A auction and those type of things, that's a different, a, a different type of business. But if you're in the smaller you know, five million and less world, these sales become very personal. Um, and they're, they're different. They're not, you're not dealing with private equity groups. You're dealing with, with actual people. Uh, and they do get hurt. Their feelings get hurt. They don't want to be jilted at the altar. Uh, they don't want to be played off of each other. If they're serious, they want you to deal with them a, in a different way. Um, and if you rub them the wrong way, they, you know, you, it's a balancing act. It's a real skill to be able to close these deals. Do you think, in retrospect, you would have done anything differently? In, I mean, having being in a luxurious position of having four offers, one of which almost met your dream criteria, um, would you have, if you had it to do over again? Would you have done anything differently about the way you tried to get them to move up their price? 
yeah, I think that I, I would have I, I would have fallen back more on that valuation. I would have used the valuation more more powerfully, um, and uh, I think that that could have that could have uh, increased my ability to negotiate. Uh, right, like it's not I, you saying it's worth two point one. It's an actual third party accredited valuation specialist, like saying it, right. So you're, is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I this is this was a big company. I paid you know ten thousand dollars for the valuation. You know what I mean? It was it was, it was real money, uh, and that was uh, that valuation was was powerful, and I didn't use it enough. How big of it, How big of an impact was it for you personally? Uh, to get a wire of $1.8 million of cash. How did that change your life? Oh, man. Um, it didn't end up being quite that at the sale. It was a little less than that. But uh, it changed, you know, from a... Hold, I grew up in a... Hold on, Tom. I want to, before you answer that fully, just tell us why it didn't end up being the 1.8. Okay. So uh, the, we had at the end of... Uh, I, I ended up taking my eye off the ball. Um, which is something I, 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 <laughs> I can't tell people who are selling the company enough, don't do. So I took my eye off the ball. I lost a few accounts leading up to the sale. So they ended up, the, end of the sale price ended up being 1.5. So they um, took money. So how did they raise that with you, that they'd offered 1.8? When did they drop the bomb that they, had, they were lowering it to 1.5? Yeah, it got really difficult um, from July through November when we were um, negotiating, uh, you know, finishing up this deal. It got extremely difficult. In what um, way? Uh, well, they actually talked to some of my customers, um, even though they were under an NDA. Um, it was forbidden for them to actually talk to your customers as part of the NDA? Correct. Interesting. And they chose to do that anyways? Correct. Hmm. They they did that, so uh, that that hurt me a little bit. Um, so I started get, get you know you'd be, you know, I was in a position where I was a little wounded, um, and I at that point I felt like we were close enough. So I wanted to make the deal, um, but uh, but I definitely hurt me a little bit financially at the end. So did you feel like them reaching out to your customers was intentionally undermining your negotiation leverage? Definitely, definitely. You have to watch out for that uh, because every of all the deals I've been in, and there's been several of them, that's happened more than once. Hmm. Did you consider going legal on them? I I did, but I really wanted to close the deal, and I wanted to get my life back more than I wanted to try to sue them for and get. If you've been, if anyone has been in small business has been down the legal uh, avenue, you don't always win. Uh, and it could, it could be very expensive. So yeah. this is such a, this is such an incredible warning and I'm so glad you've shared it, Tom, because it really is important that people understand that buyers know that the implications of a legal fight are, are not pretty for a business owner, especially if you haven't gone through an exit, right? So in your case, they probably knew you didn't have millions and millions of dollars to fight them legally. Um, and, and they probably I, you maybe know more than I do, but it, it seems like they might have used that uh, to some extent that they knew you weren't going to necessarily sue them over it. Right, right, and and it was more considering they went to my biggest client and had this conversation with them, and then and then there was a couple of employees, so it was. Yeah, I mean, yes, I had a I had a case, but I chose to close the sale rather than to fight the fight the legal battle. And so back to my last question. So you get a million five cash 
How does that mm-hmm. impact your life? It was incredible. Uh, you know, I mean, the great part of it is all of a sudden I still have a, by the way, I still have a copy of the check because back then we got checks, not wire transfer. <laughs> um, so, uh, I was incredible. All of a sudden I went, I was a poor kid growing up in the city and I grew this business and now I was a millionaire. Uh, it was, it was life changing. It was like a life light went off in my, in, in my head and, uh, it felt fantastic. It did felt, you buy yourself uh, a trophy of any sort? I did. I did. I actually, um, I sold my house and I bought a house that I could build a baseball field on. And I built a replica of Ebbets Field uh, that, that the, for, it was awesome. a wiffle ball stadium, but it wasn't an actual baseball stadium. It was a wiffle ball stadium. So it was a quarter of the size of a baseball stadium. So, yeah. That's fantastic. That's, and do you, you still have it today? I, I don't. I actually sold the house in 2013. So it was sad to see the field go. But let me tell you, if you build it, they will come. And they did come. <laughs> I had hundreds of people at my house every Saturday over the summer for uh, years playing wiffle ball. So take us now to the most recent. So you started another company that was virtually identical to FPD um, called Hannon Distribution, which you sold in 2017, last year. Um, first of all, the obvious question is, did, did the acquirer not have a non-compete, which would kind of basically um, block you from starting a competitive company? Did, that, did they not have one of those? Well, what happened was there was a long enough period of time. Uh, we're talking about, uh, what, uh, seven or eight years. So my non-compete was only for three years. So I was well past that. Okay. So you had a three-year non-compete on FPD, which allowed you to start Hannon. Right, right. And I had done some other things in between. And then I, um, and, and then there was a bunch of people that, that contacted me that wanted me to go back into business. They really felt like they needed that service again. So I... Uh, I, I took the leap again in uh, 2014. This is a great tip for a lot of entrepreneurs because because I think I'm speaking you know firsthand as well that a lot of us when we get to the end we we think man the last thing I want to do is start this business all over again uh, but you know years go by and you realize that there's some equity and some some experience there that you built up and you know five ten years down the road. I've known lots of entrepreneurs that have chosen to get right back into the same business. Of course, after the the non compete is over, uh, so you know the, the buyer might say, "Look, I want a twenty five year non compete or a lifetime non compete," and, and uh, you may want to think twice before you sign a you know a lifetime non compete. It uh, it may come back to you. Well, for sure. I mean, one of the things about this business, and you talk about it a lot, like with your automatic automatic customer and everything, mm-hmm. the reoccurring revenue in this business was fantastic. Because once a company hired you, if you did what you were supposed to do, they would always be a customer. And they would be the monthly, weekly, or bi-weekly, whatever they were. And they would, they would just come to you for that service. And you became, it was like automatic revenue once you sold them, if you serviced them. Beautiful, beautiful. So you built up Hannon Distribution uh, again. I understand there was a, a kind of an unusual circumstance around your decision to sell Hannon in 2017. You want to talk a little bit about that? Right. And this is the, the thing when I, when I talk about like, like to, to business owners now, um, the, the two things I always say to them is, one, you need to be finding your buyer from the day you open, really. You want to align your company with the buyer because you never know what's going to happen. And sure enough, I mean, I was 49 years old. I was in the best shape of my life training for Ironman, and I suffered a um, rather serious injury. And I, um, I almost uh, 
I almost died from the injury. So, so Iron Man being the triathlon, um, remind me, it's like two, well, two mile swim, one hundred and ten mile bike ride, and twenty six mile run, something like that. You're close. Two point two point four in the swim. 114 on the bike and a full marathon at the end. Okay, so you're training for this race. Um, how close to the end are? I mean, are you are, are you sort of getting the point where you could actually run that distance and and compete at that level? Oh yeah, I was a triathlete. Um, I was a triathlete and I was in fantastic shape. And I mean, what, it was, what was the injury that you sustained? Uh, it was a, um, a dissection uh, artery. I dissected an artery in my neck. I've never see. I'm not a doctor. I don't have a clue what that is. It sounds awful. But how does one dissect an artery? <laughs> in the neck? Uh, by um, by working yourself to the bone, and then uh, and then on top of it, training 20 hours a week for an Ironman. Uh, it, it was uh, what happens is you tear a, um, a, a your interior artery of your neck uh, tears, and when that tears, um, it creates blood clot, and then uh, uh, bad things happen. Wow. So uh, and so, what what happened? What were you, did were you in hospital or what? Like what happened? Yeah, I was laid up for a while. I was laid up for, for you know for weeks, and uh, and you know and, and the, thank God. I mean, I'm fine. You would never know whatever happened to me, and I'm, I I have zero deficiencies, and everything worked out okay. But the biggest, you know, the biggest part of it was I couldn't go back to running the business the way I wanted to run it. You know, because you never know when these things are going to happen, um, as I found out. You were worried that it might reoccur if you if you stressed your body too much. Well, because we were in the magazine business, it was just it was lifting heavy items. I see. Uh, okay. You know, and I was a hands-on owner. I wanted to be part of that. I didn't want to just hire people to do it. So, um, you know, and there was a lot of, just a lot of physical work that went with that industry. So you're, so, you're very much a hands-on guy. Like you're, you know, Michael Gerber talks about working on and in the, you're working in this business. You're lifting cartons of magazines, even, even, even to the point of, uh, of, of 2017. Yeah, I did that when I ran my other business too. Um, right up to the day I sold, I was, I was part of, you know, I would be out on the floor with, you know, picking up bundles of magazines, you know? So it was, um, it was always part of me because I felt like such an ownership to the customers, um, that I felt like if something wasn't happening the way I wanted to, I needed to, I needed to address it. Interesting. So, yeah. So, so, so that, I think that's a big thing. It's like, I was ready, you know, I had found, a, I, I had identified buyers before the injury, um, in case, you know, and, in and sure enough, after the injury, it was a good thing to have. And who did you uh, sell Hannon to in 2017? I sold it to uh, CTM Media. And they're, uh, they're publicly traded, are they? Yes. Yeah, they're a publicly traded company. Uh, they're part of another company, IBD or something like along those lines. Okay. I, I'm not familiar, but that's, uh, that's neither here nor there. Got it. So that was the 2017 acquisition. And, and so just before we wrap, I'd love to know kind of what – what life is like today? You've obviously gone through this traumatic experience, uh, as well as these sort of various exits. Um, you know, as you reflect on it today, um, how do you feel about the sale of Hannon and, and and FPD? Like, what words come to mind when you think about those those uh, those sales? 
you know, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to um, be an entrepreneur. I've been a serial entrepreneur my whole life. I just feel um, very fortunate I've been able to, to do that. Uh, I've been able to create these businesses, provide this great service. And then I've been able to do something that not a lot of business owners get to do, uh, which is exit the company. A lot of people can build a company, but they, they don't exit. So I feel very fortunate that I was able to exit um, all these different uh, companies that I started. Hmm. Tom, it's been a great pleasure to get to know you. What's the best way for people to reach out if they want to say hi? Do you do, you, do, you do LinkedIn or what, what's the best way for people to, to reach out if they want to reach you? Sure. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best. Um, and it's uh, Thomas Hannon Jr. Uh, and I also have a blog uh, that I actually call Win, Win Your Exit. Um, oh, interesting. And, uh, okay. And eventually, I'm going to put some classes up for people uh, to uh, to do some online courses so they can learn how to find a buyer. Awesome. So it's, so it's Thomas Hannon Jr. on LinkedIn? Yes. Awesome. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.